This is the final episode of Ballots and Bullets. Today we want to talk about the political aftermath of the race violence in Cleveland 50 years ago. In a very odd way, we can link the violence here in Cleveland in 1968 to the horrific shootings of police officers in Dallas in the summer of 2016. And this will raise the question we asked at the start of the series, that is, why are there still such high tensions between African-American citizens and police? Why have police shootings of black men in particular captured the attention of the nation and sparked the Black Lives Matter movement? Some of the answers are obvious, but others are more subtle and complicated. We will try to walk through this minefield with you, hopefully to reach some understanding, both as to how our damaged past explains where we are today, but more importantly, why some of the thinking 50 years ago about American racism may hold the key to a brighter future. I'm WKYC producer Chris Cantergiani. And I'm Jim Robinault, author of Ballots and Bullets, Black Power Politics and Urban Guerrilla Warfare in 1968 Cleveland. And we call this episode, Hired Love. We're going to start not in Cleveland, but in Dallas, 2016. Chaos erupting on the streets of Dallas at 9 p.m. Somebody's really armed to the teeth. Gunshots raining down from the sky. Officers taking cover. Jim, what happened in Dallas in 2016? Well, in 2016, a former Army veteran who had been in the Afghanistan war uh, went to a Black Lives Matter event in Dallas in response to the killings uh, a couple days before of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling. This was a protest uh, march that was scheduled in Dallas uh, in response to those murders. This guy uh, was obviously troubled, uh, Army veteran, but he went to Dallas with one thought in mind, and that is to kill as many white police officers as he could. This was retribution. Um, And so the nation watched in horror as, you know, five policemen were gunned down, many others were uh, wounded, and eventually, you may recall, the police had to use a robot device to uh, actually blow blow up the killer, Um, and um, so the, the whole thing is an echo to what happened here in Cleveland 50 years ago. And I remember at the time, it wasn't exactly clear that it wasn't, for instance, ISIS or that it was not five or six people attacking cops. But as the pieces started to come together, it, it was clear what was going on. And I, do you remember how long it was before they realized there might be a, a, a you know, black militant connection? Um, I, I think they knew it fairly soon because they had a <clears throat> long period of time where they were actually communicating with him to try to get him to surrender. So he clearly, his motives were clear, but you're right. A lot of people didn't know whether or not this was related to terrorism, but it clearly was a response to the the highly publicized uh, police shootings of um, unarmed black men. And, of course, that's what gave rise to, you know, the beginnings of Black Lives Matter to begin with. And, and so um, this was playing out right in front of all of this. But what what I think is important for us to look at is not just that it's a parallel where you have African-Americans deliberately ambushing police. What can we draw from it? And what are the parallels that we see? And so we, we have to ask our audience, stick with us on this one a little bit, because we, we've got some, I think, some remarkable parallels to talk about. Let's first talk about Evans and uh, Micah Johnson, who was the shooter in Dallas. Right. There are parallels there. First of all, both of them were combat veterans. Uh, Obviously, Evans was in the Korean War, and Johnson was uh, in Afghanistan. Both of them probably suffered from PTSD, from their experiences in the war. It may not have been named in Evans's case back in that era. It was still shell shock, or whatever they might have called it. Right. And both of them were uh, black nationalists in belief, Um, uh, black panther, black nationalists. Uh, Johnson had gone on websites and 
uh, particularly about Black Panthers and so forth. So both of them had these this philosophy of um, Blacks protecting themselves and arming themselves to protect themselves against the police. Both of them were responding to police um, abuses. Um, with Ahmed Evans, it was more over time. Um, and with Johnson, it was all those recent killings that uh, got him uh, sparked. So um, we have that parallel. And, and it's, it's kind of eerie because you can go and look at pictures of uh, Johnson with the black uh, fist salute and put it right next to Ahmed Evans 50 Is he years in the ago. I think yeah, in his well, yeah. yeah. So it's not hard to see there's these parallels, but it's deeper than that. The second thing I think that we've identified here is that um, when this happened, President Obama had to respond in some way to this. So he had to walk a line between supporting the police who had been attacked and still supporting Black Lives Matter and what was going on in the country. So he took that opportunity to write an open letter to law enforcement, and in that letter, um, amazingly enough, he references Bobby Kennedy coming to Cleveland in 1968 and giving his mindless menace of violence speech uh, after Martin Luther King is killed. Very so, appropriate and cosmic in a way of yeah. knowing what happened. So let's uh, listen to a little bit of President Obama speaking um, to the fallen officers and their families back then, and then I want to read some of his letter. So here's a clip of his speech. We know that the overwhelming majority of police officers do an incredibly hard and dangerous job fairly and professionally. They are deserving of our respect and not our scorn. And when anyone, no matter how good their intentions may be, paints all police as biased or bigoted. We undermine those officers we depend on for our safety. And as for those who use rhetoric suggesting harm to police, even if they don't act on it themselves, well, they not only make the jobs of police officers even more dangerous, but they do a disservice to the very cause of justice that they claim to promote. We also know that centuries of racial discrimination, of slavery and subjugation and Jim Crow, they didn't simply vanish with the end of lawful segregation. They didn't just stop when Dr. King made a speech or the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act were signed. Race relations have improved dramatically in my lifetime. Those who deny it are dishonoring the struggles that helped us achieve that progress. But we know... (laughs) But America, we know that bias remains. We know it. Whether you are black or white or Hispanic or Asian or Native American or of Middle Eastern descent, we have all seen this bigotry in our own lives at some point. We've heard it at times in our own homes. If we're honest, perhaps we've heard prejudice in our own heads and felt it in our own hearts. We know that. And while some suffer far more under racism's burden, some feel to a far greater extent discrimination's sting. Although most of us do our best to guard against it and teach our children better, none of us is entirely innocent. 
No institution is entirely immune. And that includes our police departments. We know this. Can we see in each other a common humanity and a shared dignity and recognize how our different experiences have shaped us? And it doesn't make anybody perfectly good or perfectly bad. It just makes us human. I don't know. I confess that sometimes I, too, experience doubt. I've been to too many of these things. I've seen too many families go through this. But then I am reminded of what the Lord tells Ezekiel. I will give you a new heart, the Lord says, and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That's what we must pray for, each of us. A new heart. Not a heart of stone, but a heart open to the fears and hopes and challenges of our fellow citizens. That's what we've seen in Dallas these past few days. And that's what we must sustain. Because with an open heart, we can learn to stand in each other's shoes and look at the world through each other's eyes. So that maybe the police officer sees his own son in that teenager with a hoodie who's kind of goofing off, but not dangerous. And the teenager, maybe the teenager will see in the police officer the same words and values and authority of his parents. With an open heart, we can abandon the overheated rhetoric and the oversimplification that reduces whole categories of our fellow Americans, not just to opponents, but to enemies. Right before President Obama gave the speech, he sent, he wrote and sent an open letter to police. Uh, Jim, what did he say? Two things about this, and I want to read from it. Um, the first is, uh, he, I write in my book, um, he could have been writing about the bravery demonstrated by those Cleveland police officers killed and wounded on July 23, 1968. What he wrote was, every day you accept this responsibility and you see your colleagues do their difficult, dangerous jobs with equal valor. I want you to know that the American people see it too. We recognize it, we respect it, we appreciate it, and we depend on you. And just as your tight-knit law enforcement family feels the recent losses to your core, our nation grieves alongside you. Any attack on police is an unjustified attack on all of us. So he really could have been writing that about the police officers here in Cleveland. There was no president who did write anything about the police officers here in Cleveland. Yeah, that is one. one yeah, there are a lot of parallels, one stark difference is I think the highest level official that we know of that spoke was probably the mayor right. at the time. And right. it didn't grip the nation's attention as Dallas did. Right. So maybe we can hear a little bit from Carl Stokes on what he said. It is a fact that around 8.30 yesterday evening that uh, a tow truck driver, Cleveland tow truck driver, was shot at and wounded uh, in the area involved. And at that time, the police cars came to the scene and there was the heavy exchange of gunfire between the police and between the men who were located in the building. Now, most of the, or almost all of the 10 persons who are dead, that include three policemen, seven civilians, as well as the 15 persons who were wounded, uh, all incurred uh, this injury and the death at this scene. Is 
So the second thing I want to talk about with President Obama's um, letter here is that he did reference Bobby Kennedy's mindless menace of violence speech, um, although he did it in a kind of oblique way that you have to know the speech to know what he's doing. But here's what he said. He wrote, um, Robert Kennedy, once our nation's, nation's highest-ranking law enforcement official, Bobby Kennedy had been attorney general, lamented in the wake of unjust violence in, in a country in which we look at our neighbors as people with whom we share a city but not a community. So you don't even know that he's really talking about that mindless menace of violence. And what's interesting is he doesn't even talk, that viol- unjust violence he's talking about is the assassination of Martin Luther King. Right. Kind of tells you a little bit about how Obama had to, you know, thread the needle when he talked about race, racial matters. He had to be very careful about it True. Um, and temper what he was saying. But he, he's literally talking about that assassination. So, but let's listen to Bobby Kennedy's clip where he does talk about this whole idea of we look at our neighborhoods as people with whom we share a city, but not a community. Given here in Cleveland. Right. But when you teach a man to hate and to fear his brother, when you teach that he is a lesser man because of his color or his beliefs or the policies that he pursues, when you teach that those who differ from you threaten your freedom or your job or your home or your family, then you also learn to confront others, not as fellow citizens, but as enemies, to be met not with cooperation, but with conquest, to be subjugated and to be mastered. We learn at the last to look at our brothers as alien, alien men with whom we share a city, but not a community, men bound to us in common dwelling, but not in a common effort. We learn to share only a common fear, only a common desire to retreat from each other, only a common impulse to meet disagreement with force. For all this, there are no final answers for those of us who are American citizens. Yet we know what we must do, and that is to achieve true justice among all of our fellow citizens. And so uh, Obama goes on to say, President Obama goes on to say, this is a time for us to reaffirm that what makes us special is that we are not only a country, but also a community. That is true whether you are black or white, whether you are rich or poor, whether you are a police officer or someone they protect and serve. So that's the the other parallel that we see between Dallas and Cleveland uh, in 1968. I think a remarkable one. And then uh, there's even more here. Uh, And this, to me, is kind of the, the big picture takeaway from all of this. When the violence happened in the 1960s in the urban areas, people were responding to the horrible conditions that they lived in. There was progress. There was the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, but it was, as we've said many times, too little, too late, and it really didn't address the poverty question. Back in 68, um, Lyndon Johnson had started the Great Society and the War on Poverty And part of that war on poverty was to try to eliminate the very conditions that were causing the riots. But, of course, that takes time. And so you still see the flare-ups happening because not enough progress is being made. But we were on the right track. This was, you know, the Kerner Commission saying ghettos are a white-created problem. And Martin Luther King, a poor people's campaign, the war on poverty. Bobby Kennedy emphasizing the same thing as he ran for president. And then all this violence really swallows the remedy. Um, the urban violence in beginning with Watts through, through all of the other cities, Newark and Detroit, uh, Detroit and uh, Chicago and 
Huff, and you, you just go right down the line. There were, I think, there was like two hundred um, riots and violence, you know, during this period of time. Was, uh, that that violence, including this shootout here in Cleveland, caused a, a white backlash, and it caused people to say. We're going down the wrong path. We need law and order. There's chaos in the streets. There's crime. And you keep giving people, uh, these people, money. You give them welfare. You give them war on poverty. And you're getting in response this violence. And it, it wasn't immediate uh, blowback, was it? It took a, a buildup? It took a buildup. Yeah. But this is what <clears throat> Richard Nixon capitalized on when he ran for president. He knew... He had to do a couple of things. One thing he had to do was to turn the South from solidly Democratic to solidly Republican, which is what happened during his time. And, of course, he did that based on the fact that Johnson had supported civil rights, and the Southern Democrats did not like that and were not happy about it. And that begins the great migration of all those very solidly Democratic um, voters from Democrats to Republicans. Mm-hmm. But it's based on a race whistle type thing of, for example, Nixon said, I'm going to give you a Supreme Court that will stop this busing that's going on. Uh, he'll do it by uh, putting people on there that he called strict constructionists. So we see that playing out today yeah. again. But um, but that's what was going on. It's a white backlash. And, you know, as awful as it is, it's not like insanity. People really felt that their country was in trouble and in chaos, and so they really wanted to support Richard Nixon, who went to Miami Beach a couple weeks after the shootout here in Cleveland, and he gave a very dark speech. You know, there are people killing people in the streets. Uh, police, we hear police sirens, and I am the law and order candidate. So. Let's listen a little bit to some of Nixon's speech in Miami Beach. The American Revolution was and is dedicated to progress. But our founders recognized that the first requisite of progress is order. Now, there is no quarrel between progress and order because neither can exist without the other. So let us have order in America, not the order that suppresses dissent and discourages change, but the order which guarantees the right to dissent and provides the basis for peaceful change. And tonight it's time for some honest talk about the problem of order in the United States. Let us always respect, as I do, our courts and those who serve on them, but let us also recognize that some of our courts in their decisions have gone too far in weakening the peace forces as against the criminal forces in this country. Because, my friends, let this message come through clear from what I say tonight. Time is running out for the merchants of crime and corruption in American society. The wave of crime is not going to be the wave of the future in the United States of America. We shall reestablish freedom from fear in America so that America can take the lead in reestablishing freedom from fear in the world. And to those who say that law and order is the code word for racism, there and here is a reply. Our goal is justice, justice for every American. Well, that was then. What about, what about now? What about 2016? What's the parallel? So here's what's almost eerie, because um, we, we flash forward to 2016, and we just talked about the Dallas shootings. Um, two weeks later after that, just like it was two weeks after the shootout here, uh, Donald Trump doesn't go anywhere in the country. He comes to Cleveland. He comes to Cleveland because here's where the convention is, and he's going to give a speech. What's his speech going to be? There's violence in the streets. He's referring to Black Lives Matter. There is chaos. I am your law and order candidate. I mean, it is is exactly what Nixon said 50 years ago. Coincidence or by design? 
absolutely by design. And um, we can listen to a little bit of Richard Nixon to see how he's paralleling exactly what Nixon said. But uh, listen but, to Trump. But listen to Trump. But Trump's campaign manager, pretty controversial figure named Manafort, uh, who's now in jail, um, as we go to, to, to this podcast, he comes to the press and he says, we are picking up our speech and we are modeling it on Richard Nixon's 1968 speech. Mm. So there's no question what happened. So let's listen to a couple clips here. Maybe we can find the Manafort clip. Sign, sign by as well. But also the, uh, the uh, President Trump, at the time, candidate Trump, talking about the darkness and how he was going to be uh, the law and order candidate. Together, we will lead our party back to the White House, and we will lead our country back to safety, prosperity, and peace. We will be a country of generosity and warmth, but we will also be a country of law and order. convention occurs at a moment of crisis for our nation. The attacks on our police and the terrorism of our cities threaten our very way of life. Any politician who does not grasp this danger is not fit to lead our country. Americans watching this address tonight have seen the recent images of violence in our streets and the chaos in our communities. Many have witnessed this violence personally. Some have even been its victims. I have a message for all of you. The crime and violence that today afflicts our nation will soon, and I mean very soon, come to an end. The first task for our new administration will be to liberate our citizens from the crime and terrorism and lawlessness that threatens our communities. America was shocked to its core when our police officers in Dallas were so brutally executed. Immediately after Dallas, we've seen continued threats and violence against our law enforcement officials. Law officers have been shot or killed in recent days in Georgia, Missouri, Wisconsin, Kansas, Michigan, and Tennessee. On Sunday, more police were gunned down in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Three were killed and three were very, very badly injured. An attack on law enforcement is an attack on all Americans. I have a message to every last person threatening the peace on our streets and the safety of our police. When I take the oath of office next year, I will restore law and order to our country. Believe me, believe me. I will work with and appoint 
the best and brightest prosecutors and law enforcement officials to get the job properly done. In this race for the White House, I am the law and order candidate. Paul, as part of that speech, he, he led with uh, supporting our police and talking about law and order. He received some criticism after Orlando for his response, but folks have noticed and praised him for a more measured response uh, here in response to the crisis in Dallas. Is that a shift in the campaign in the way you're approaching things? No, I don't think so at all. I think, you know, last week, the tragedies that occurred, you know, occurred across the whole spectrum of, the, of society. And he was addressing all of that uh, in, in his comments on last Friday and over the weekend and, and yesterday. And he's concerned about it. He's concerned about the lawlessness. And more importantly, he's concerned about the fact that people don't, you know, that there's an attitude in government that doesn't respect law enforcement authorities and first responders. Uh, and he's trying to say that everything a president has to do is the key is leadership and you can't lead for just part of the country you have to lead for all of the country you have to be clear in what you believe in uh, and he tried to express those feelings over the course of the last several mm -hmm. days and uh, I think he's done it successfully so what what comes out of this is in 1968 we had the war on poverty um, Nixon wins, uh, in part as the backlash, and he then begins to systematically um, undermine and uh, do away with the war on poverty and the, a lot of the great society reforms. Uh, and to give you an idea of how directed this is, the guy who Nixon appoints to become the director of the Office of Economic Opportunity which is the engine of the war on poverty. Mm -hmm. It's the, it, everything goes through that office, um, is Donald Rumsfeld. 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 <laughs> so it, it tells you a couple things. Rumsfeld had voted against all of the anti-poverty le uh, legislation that Johnson was putting through as a congressman. So he's putting someone who's very hostile to this in, in there, and his idea is to slowly strangle the Office of Economic Opportunity and have it go away. Not a subtle signal. Did, not, it was known what Rumsfeld's position would probably be? Absolutely. I mean, it's not unlike um, President Trump appointing people who are hostile to the EPA as the head of the EPA. It was that sort of reaction. And um, so that's the end of the war on poverty. What, what happens, though, is it begins this period of time when instead of addressing the core issues that are causing the problems and the core issues of racism, um, we begin, and Nixon begins, and this has been well documented in films and books, uh, 13th is one of them, mm -hmm. uh, that Nixon begins the war on drugs, and it is the beginning of what, what is referred to as the lock em up mentality, where huge numbers of African-American males are arrested and put in jail a lot of them for, you know, petty drug crimes. But if it's three strikes, you're out. That's Bill Clinton. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this this period of time where we are involved in what people refer to as mass incarceration of African-American males. You, pin, you can pinpoint it in that moment. Starting with Richard Nixon. And there have been a lot of uh, works done on this. Um, and what happens is uh, you have more people incarcerated than... Uh, eventually than we had in uh, uh, African-American males in slavery, at the, you know, back when slavery was still uh, around. Mm -hmm. And the United States ends up having one of the highest percentages of people incarcerated in the world. Um, so this is a, it's not just that we stop the war on poverty. We also start taking away whole generations of African-American males from their families, um, all on, you know, a lot of these people went to jail for marijuana infractions. And President Obama tried to address some of that he, when he did a lot of pardoning during that period of time. Right. But, you know, it, it was um, – it, what it's why we are here 50 years later. It answers my question that I started my book with, which was why do we have somebody shooting policemen 
in Dallas 50 years after Ahmed Evans did it here in Cleveland? And the answer is because we stopped addressing the problem. And I, I've said this before, the insanity of American racism is that we blame the victims of that racism for the consequences of that racism. And so we, you know, it just is, it is a mindset that is um, a peculiar American pathology. There's racism all around. Uniquely American? Yeah, but all around the country, I mean, all around the world, there's this. But we had such, we had this huge slave empire here that no other country had. And so we have this legacy. We never dealt with it. And as we're talking about in this podcast, um, you can see it here in Cleveland because nobody has talked about Glenville in an honest way. Right. Everybody wants to bury it for their own reasons. But if you don't talk about something, if you don't get it out in the open, if you don't deal with it honestly, um, it festers. There's Um, there's a a soundbite I think we could play really quickly that was the night after the shootout. They speak with the head of the SCLC who talks about the problems for, as he puts it, black people in Cleveland. And he could just as easily have said it today. Right. Here's that sound like. As a representative of the black community here in Cleveland, what do you feel started or prompted or instigated the action that started last night at 830? Um, a continuing buildup of frustrations and promises that were never fulfilled or met. Uh, the incident which occurred, I don't feel, had any necessary direct relationship. Uh, but the people were frustrated, and any incident given would have given them the opportunity to express those frustrations in the violent terms that they believed then. So I don't place that much emphasis on what happened or how it began, half as much as the bitterness that would drive a person to be that prepared to uh, fight a violent uh, uh, type of battle. Do you feel that keeping white policemen out of the area is going to help alleviate some of the problem? No, I don't, because the policemen don't create the problems. The policemen's are only uh, policemen are only symbolic of the power structure when they come in and uh, fail to communicate with the people in the community. So they are seen as the power structure when really they are only symbols. And I feel if you remove all the police, black and white, you're still going to have the problems and you're still going to have violence. I feel that removing the police may ease the tensions for the time being, but at the same time some constructive contact and programming is going to have to be done uh, in the black community to alleviate these kind of conditions. Which What would you violence. like to see done in the black community? What specific program do you think would help alleviate some of the frustration in this area? Well, I think a very direct, hard... Uh, attack and approach on the whole questions of housing and jobs would deal with that problem more than anything else. These are the kind of things that allow people to walk out of their houses to see what's going on in the corner. They don't have anything that interests them to keep them on the inside. In the suburbs you have incidents that happen every day but the people stay in because they uh, see their homes as their castles. One of the basic problems in the black community in Cleveland is that they have such inferior housing until they spend less time in their house than they do anywhere else. So as a result, they walk the streets and they do different things to occupy their time and to release their frustrations, which make them ripe fruit to be plucked by any situation where they can express a kind of uh, revenge or violence toward what's going on. That was one of the many clips that we found when we went to the John Carroll archives of uh, their university. They have WKYC's footage, many of the film reels still exist, and they can clean them up, and we had uh, that material to work with as we were putting our TV stories together, and I was really struck by that one soundbite. The other, another thing they had was the speech that Stokes gave the morning after the riots press conference where he was talking. Right. Jim, what happened there? This uh, is a moment. I mean, Carl Stokes, um, you know, had been blindsided by this. He knew Ahmed Evans. He was trying to help with the situation. Uh, But now you can see it in his eyes. People have to go watch this clip because um, when he starts that press conference, he just looks like a deer in the headlights. I mean, he he really, there's fear in his eyes. I mean, he knows not only that this horrible thing had happened in his community, but he knows that he's going to be blamed. And the whole world could be on fire the next day, and it started in Cleveland. They don't know what's going to happen the next day. So... What I found just uh, very telling about that press conference is Stokes 
says, you know, this was a bunch, this was limited, it was only these people, and then he's asked, well, did you know Ahmed Evans? He has to admit that he did. And then the question comes, which is a reporter saying, hey, you know, we elected you to not have this happen in our city. Why do you think this is happening? And, you know, it's just a very direct question, and Stokes deals with it. You'll see how he deals with it here, but it is, it's kind of the whole... The whole point that we've been making, which is this was kind of the end of Carl Stokes' political career. If you were elected mayor, there would be no racial violence in the paper. What do you think that this has done to that image? Well, there always has been a very great difficulty in helping people to understand what have been and ordinarily are the uh, basic causes of riots. Ordinarily, the rioting as we have known it, the civil disorders as we have known it, has been the frustrated rebellion or reaction of a, uh, of a deprived population to an unresponsive city government, ordinarily. Now, that was not reflected in last night's incident, and it would have to be, at least at this point, Last night's incident will still have to be viewed in the light of the uh, of the small and determined group that were involved. Because what were the determined in doing? I mean, what was their motive, folks? What did they want? To well, I can't guess at their at their motive, but we can only we can only uh, draw the conclusion from the the fact that they were armed and uh, weren't they unhappy about something? Otherwise, they would have done this. Do you have any idea what they were unhappy about? Well, nothing that I could report to you at all. So joining us on the podcast now is my WKYC colleague and partner, Tom Meyer, who's been a a journalist here for many years in Cleveland. Uh, Tom, we wanted to ask you a little bit about what changed with the Cleveland Police Department following the Glenville shootout, and what are things like now, today, 50 years later? Well, I don't think it's any secret that the, the tensions are very high between the black community and the Cleveland Police Department. It's been like that for a long time. They've had a long history of uh, dysfunction, incompetence, uh, allegations of racism, and there's good reason for that. There is a number of high-profile cases in Cleveland, uh, shootings by mostly white officers against black individuals. Of course, the Tamir Rice case, the 12-year-old boy who had a toy gun and was shot and killed within seconds of police showing up at a Cleveland rec center. That was a very controversial case. Uh, it, it spread across the country, sparked debate nationwide. There was the two unarmed suspects who were African-American who uh, were involved in this wild Crosstown chase, 137 bullets uh, were shot. They were both killed and they were unarmed. That sparked a lot of controversy. And then you had Tanisha Anderson, another African American who mentally ill and died in the custody of police. She was handcuffed and family say that she was slammed to the ground, knocked unconscious, and she was and, and she died. Mm. So all these cases um, really drew a lot of attention, even more attention, to the Cleveland Police Department. And so what happened, that all these cases helped lead to 2015 and a federal consent decree, a court-enforced order where the federal government wanted Cleveland to reform its police department. Uh, Cleveland agreed to do that. In fact, Frank Jackson says he wanted it. So they are still under this consent decree in which they are supposed to Um, carry out all these requirements set forth in the consent decree. And so far, so far it's been kind of a mixed bag. There's been some positive things, there's been some negative things. On the positive side, um, I believe all the officers, most of the officers, if not all of them, have now undergone uh, new training involving use of force. And it involves things like not using a weapon against someone who's merely talking back at you. That's part of it. Or that had to be spelled out? Yes. Wow. And then are, are taking as many steps as possible to reduce tension before even considering using a weapon. So that part, the, the feds are very impressed with, and they, they, they're very happy they got that done. 
They're also very impressed with this new crisis intervention policy that's aimed for mentally ill uh, people like Tanisha Anderson. Um, they are doing everything they can, the police department, to make sure that these in individuals stay away from jail and they steer them toward mental health treatment programs. The other good thing is in the 2018 city budget, um, the mayor has proposed millions of dollars uh, to be spent. Now, some of this they have to spend because of the court order. So they're doing it in part out of obligation, but they're also instituting their own reforms. Um, they're going to hire more police officers. They're going to hire maybe up to 250 officers by the end of 2019. Now, on the negative side, the city is still coming under heavy criticism for the way it investigates city complaints. The Office of Professional Standards has really been a problem over the years, and they still have this massive backlog of citizen complaints. I think it's around 300 or so. Now, they've hired additional investigators who work with the uh, Police Civilian Review Board. Right. But that's a big issue, a huge issue right now with the, uh, the federal monitor. Um, they also say, black citizens are, are still saying, though, they're still complaining that they're physically and verbally abused by police. And so the, the federal uh, monitors believe that there still is some racial profiling that might be going on that still has to be eliminated, that has to be addressed. The city's also criticized for not having an adequate plan to train police. This has really been an issue. The city of Cleveland, Chris, is about 53% um, black. The police force has only 22% black officers. So there's this huge disparity between the people that they serve and protect. That's increased probably from 50 years ago. Probably. Percentage-wise. Oh, enormously. Yeah, back then it was 2,200 police, 168 black yeah. uh, officers. Now, you know, and part of it is that, you know, there's Cleveland police aren't paid very well. I mean, it could be a testing issue where they don't test well. There could be failure to pass background checks, that kind of thing. But black leaders tell me, and I have talked to a number of uh, black community leaders out there who, who say that black, young black people do not want to become a police officer in the city of Cleveland because they fear that they'll be treated in their community as the enemy. So it just, it just speaks to this uh, mistrust between black citizens and police. And that's something, that's probably the most serious thing they have to get over. And it, it's, it's going to take time to do that. Now, having said all that, they, they're supposed to, have uh, supposed to get this consent degree in force in five to seven years. And not too long ago, one city official said that they think they'll have everything completed by 2000, by, by, well, in five years, so 2020. Well, that's, yeah. that's actually good news. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the, uh, the thing that uh, is helpful with respect to the police, in my view, is you've got an African-American chief. Right. And um, Chief Williams mm -hmm. did, uh, did the city very proud during the 2016 uh uh, Republican National Convention here in Cleveland, and I think set forth a new image for Cleveland. And there was, you know, great crowd control, no violence. It was a really remarkable effort on his part. And so I think that is another thing that is helping the city. So the hope of progress with the consent decree, uh, is there a remedy? I think what, what we want to do in terms of wrapping up this series is, I mean, first of all, thank Channel 3 for doing this. I think it's a courageous thing that the um, WKYC is doing, so thank you for that. Thank you for joining us and writing the book and laying the framework for all of this. But I, what I want to do is to say what I've said in the book, which is, in 1968, as chaotic as it was, uh, we were on the right track. We had the war on poverty. It, to go back to January of 68, get us out of Vietnam so that we don't have the Tet Offensive, 
go back, Dr. King is alive, Robert Kennedy is alive, the war on poverty is starting up and moving along, and um, we are addressing the issues. So we have the Kerner Commission that comes out, and they say, and this is mostly white commissioners, mostly male, segregation and poverty have created uh, in the racial ghetto a destructive environment totally unknown to most white Americans. And here, I think, is really the core of it. What white Americans have never fully understood, but what the Negro can never forget, is that the white society is deeply implicated in the ghetto. White institutions created it. White institutions maintain it. And white society condones it. And what the Kerner Commission said was, the answer to all this is not to give up, but to apply the kind of resources that the United States could apply to a situation like this and have the massive will to change things through uh, spending uh, money for education, housing, and, and jobs, and all of those sorts of things. The path they were on. The very path they were on. So if we go back and we listen to a couple of voices that we've already listened to in this podcast to remind ourselves, this is Robert Kennedy talking about how we are all brothers. And his, uh, his daughter was here recently, and she added, and sisters. Um, but listen to RFK give what is his, really his Gettysburg Address here in Cleveland the day after King is assassinated. Listen to this segment. Among free men, said Abraham Lincoln, there can be no successful appeal from the ballot to the bullet. And those who take such appeal are sure to lose their case and pay the cost. Yet we seemingly tolerate a rising level of violence that ignores our common humanity and our claims to civilization alike. We calmly accept newspaper reports of civilian slaughter in far-off lands. We glorify killing on movie and television screens, and we call it entertainment. We'd make it easier for men of all shades of sanity to acquire weapons and ammunition that they desire. Our lives on this planet are too short. The work to be done is too great to let this spirit flourish any longer in this land of ours. Of course, we cannot banish it with a program, nor with a resolution. But we can perhaps remember, if only for a time, that those who live with us are our brothers, that they share with us the same short moment of life, that they seek, as do we, nothing but the chance to live out their lives in purpose and in happiness, winning what satisfaction and fulfillment that they can. Surely this bond of common fate, surely this bond of common goals can begin to teach us something. Surely we can learn at the least to look around at those of us of our fellow men, and surely we can begin to work a little harder to bind up the wounds among us and to become in our hearts brothers and countrymen once again. And then we listen to another voice that we've heard, which is Vice President Humphrey coming to Cleveland on June 2nd, saying what we need to do is to apply a Marshall Plan to the cities, that sort of effort. And if you think about the Marshall Plan, you know, Europe was destroyed after the Second World War. It was totally in tatters, and it took that huge commitment from the United States, both the will and the money, to go over and change it and, and save Europe, and we did. And so Humphrey's asking for that same commitment here. We need that commitment again in the United States, you know, for our urban areas and for cities. They need that the commitment to happen now in 2018, 2019. Right. And it, you can't rely on just Cleveland and you can't rely on just Ohio. It's a, uh, you know, it's a uh, 
it's an issue that requires all of us, all Americans, to address. Now, many cities are today just coming alive after a long slumber. And I hope you won't think me unkind if I say that Cleveland, Ohio, under the leadership of your mayor, with the Cleveland Now program and all that it represents of public and private commitment and endeavor, that Cleveland now symbolizes the reawakening of the city and its people. And this is why I have selected for today this topic of the American city. So there was a, um, a magazine recently that you mentioned that's spot on with this, and it comes from, in a way, an unlikely source. Is it in, really a news magazine of current events? It's National Geographic. Yes, and once again, we have our, our Cleveland connection. Yeah. We have to have a Cleveland connection to wrap this, and it's this. Um, Susan Goldberg came here uh, about 10 years ago to become the first female editor of the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And she did a lot of great work here. She went on to become the first female editor of the National Geographic magazine. Um, And she is doing tremendous work there. Uh, But in April of this year, 2018, she put out a special issue. Uh, She didn't, National Geographic did, but on black and white. Um, And it's the race issue. And what is extraordinary about this is, is that They wrote about the fact that because of science and DNA testing that we now know, this is is literally from the magazine. What is race exactly? Science tells us there is no genetic or scientific scientific basis for it. Instead, it's largely a made-up label used to define and separate us. So think about that. All of this stewing that we've done over 400 years in this country over race, and it's a myth. It is a total myth. Science now shows us that. So let me read you this paragraph. For this, again, from National Geographic. Over the past few decades, genetic research has revealed two deep truths about people. The first is that all humans are closely related, more closely related than all chimps, even though there are many more humans around today. Everyone has the same collection of genes, But with the exception of identical twins, everyone has a slightly different version of some of them. Studies of this genetic diversity have allowed scientists to reconstruct a kind of family tree of human populations. That has revealed the second deep truth. In a very real sense, all people alive today are Africans. So, I mean, I think if we we not only apply our resources, we change our perspective. We start looking at each other, not as people from different races, but as Bobby Kennedy said, as brothers, because we are brothers and sisters. We are genetically that. We are not different. And um, the the myth that has caused all this trouble and, and all this consternation, um, if we start to understand this from even just a scientific perspective, that could change the world. And so I think, uh, you know, hopefully through this podcast, we've moved through the damage of our past and we can look to a brighter future where people begin to understand that we are all from one family. Yeah. Well, this has been quite, quite a tale to tell. And we hope that you have enjoyed spending time with us. This is a new time, a new generation. We have a closing intro song that is Steve Winwood and his daughter, his generation, starting off with Think About It. Thanks again. Think about it There must be higher love Down in the heart and in the stars above Ballots and Bullets podcast is a WKYC production. Our editors are Raquel Hagman and Rob Gardner. Musical selections in this episode include Higher Love, the instrumental 12-inch version and the album cut by Steve Winwood, Inner City Blues by Marvin Gaye, Funky Watergate by the JBs, Sick of You by Lou Reed, Fergus Lang by Richard Thompson, Remedy by the Black Crows, and we concluded with a new recording of Higher Love, a 2016 duet with Steve Winwood and his daughter Lily. Be sure to pick up a copy of Jim Robinalt's book, 
Ballots and Bullets, Black Power Politics and Urban Guerrilla Warfare in 1968, Cleveland. Bring me a higher love. Bring me a higher love. Where's this higher love I've been thinking of? What's turning? so bad everywhere in this old world was fair we walk blind and we try to see falling behind in what could be Rise above 